Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The psalmist cries, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? Or as the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, offers in language that we are much more familiar with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is difficult to imagine a more wrenching prayer a more honest prayer than these very first words of Psalm 22. The psalmist prays saying not just God, but my God, my God. The contrast is nearly unbearable. God so close before is now entirely absent. And the silence could not be more complete. Day and night, cries go unanswered. The entire first half of this psalm moves back and forth and back and forth from past to present, from descriptions of earlier confidences to anguish of attending circumstances. And we just have to wonder As I know, you have probably prayed this prayer. And I know we just have to wonder, is the psalmist finally going to give up on God? You know, Lilia's poem is so honest too, isn't it? And it's so full of light and so full of hope, and yet I imagine there have been times in her life, in these days, where she has been wrenched by the absence of God, in the silence of God, in the midst of all the noise of war. So the great Hebrew scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who was a professor at Eden Theological Seminary, a UC seminary in St. Louis, and an ordained United Church of Christ pastor, he suggests that the church has avoided using psalms like Psalm 22 in worship. Avoided it. Instead, has chosen to the psalms that speak of praise and thanksgiving and certainty and orientation, that this has been the work of the church, that that is where we put our focus. He thinks that the Psalms of Lament, and this of course today is a Psalm of individual lament, the Psalms of Lament, what he calls the Psalms of Darkness, that people are afraid that their use is an act of unfaith and failure. 
but he urges us to reconsider. Consider that for a trusting community, the use of the Psalms of darkness is an act of bold faith, actually transformed faith. And he suggests that the bold faith, faith is that the Psalms of darkness insists that the world must be experienced in its reality and not in some pretend way. And that all such experiences of disorder are the proper subjects for a discourse with God. As Christians, Psalm 22 is so familiar. If you've worshipped at all in any holy week, certainly you know the Psalm of Lament that begins in the dark with one of Jesus' final statements from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That upset me so much as a teenager. I couldn't believe that Jesus would say, God, why have you forsaken me? I just couldn't believe it. So I went and found the psalm and read the whole thing. It's very long, much longer than what we heard today. It's very, very long. And I learned things. And I still learn things as I read this, this song of sorrow. But this psalm, as we Christians hear it, was not intended to be prophetic. And its original form was not Christ-centric. Even though we can't help but hear Jesus speak from the cross to us, in a Christ-centric way. We can't help it. It's our embedded theology, right? It's in our bones that we hear Jesus speaking to us from the cross. And to be fair, to say, my God, my God, is actually an act of faith, isn't it? That in the darkest parts of our lives, when we have finally decided that there is no God, that all we get is silence, to actually exclaim, my God, my God, is an act of faith. So how can we get to this understanding from the beginning of this psalm, this, this painful, painful psalm, how do we get from there to it being an act of faith? How can we get to this understanding, especially when God seems so far away and is so silent? The psalmist is brought as low as one can imagine, I think, saying, I am a worm, having lost any sense of self and being human. Others treat the psalmist not with indifferent, but with worse, contempt. Let God rescue. Let God rescue. Let God rescue the one crying out. At death's door, the psalmist's body is wasting away. My heart has turned to wax and is melting. 
all my bones are on display. Let me ask you, you been there? Have you been there in your life where you thought, oh gosh, could things be any more painful? John Gollingay, a British Old Testament scholar, translator, and Anglican cleric, and professor emeritus of the Old Testament in the School of Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in California says that this psalm um, offers a counter-argument to, counter, to a common mode of Christian comfort. See, you know, what we do is we sidle up to the person in pain and we say, it'll be okay. God is with you. God loves you. It's all going to be fine. Just hang on. <laughs> you know that? My Enneagram teacher, Suzanne Stabile, says that, and the Enneagram is a nine-point wheel on which we learn the different ways that we are in the world and how we respond to things, right? And that the only number on the nine-point wheel is that can sit with people in their pain is the number four. That the number four will sidle up to you and just be with you. But Golengay says that it's our practice in the church, in worship, and with our friends to sidle up next to them and say, it'll be okay. God is with you. God is with you in this suffering. Psalm 22 shows us a contrast that says, God was not present with this supplicant and does not expect us to pretend this is so when it is not. Sometimes we need to have the courage to say to our friends, I know, I know that God is absent for you right now. I know that God is being silent right now. Or maybe to say nothing at all. Just be there. Psalm 22 invites those of us who experience suffering to find ways to remind God of God's faithfulness. That's what it is, isn't it? That the psalmist is exclaiming, God, why have you forsaken me? This is not your promise. This is not what you said would happen. That it's to remind God to plead with God for change and to believe strongly enough in our argument that God will, in fact, respond, even if it's not the response we want, even if it doesn't come in time, <coughs> even if we can't hear it, that God will respond. The entire tension and the very mystery of Psalm 22 lies between a plain assertion you are far from me. And a humble request, be not far from me. But, and take note here, the psalmist tells of personal desolation and yet at the same time does not cease remembering God. Ticked off, but does not cease to remember God. The first 24 verses of the psalm remain in the first person's voice. I'm in pain. My heart's melting away. 
But then something happens. In verse 25, the tone alters slightly. And the litany of the individual turns, turns toward community, towards a right and creative relationship with God, suddenly, imperceptibly at first. Then, amazingly, a turnaround occurs. What happens exactly and what God has done remains unclear as the original cause of the psalmist's suffering. We don't know what happens. But what we hear is the psalmist invites others to join in the great assembly to praise God and to praise God precisely because of what has happened to the psalmist. The psalmist invites the praise of God even in the midst of the suffering and invites others to hear that praise. And that's really, really, really important. There's no hint hint of lingering resentment. God's presence or answer or voice has seemed to have wiped away any possibility of turning even on the persecutors. They too are sufferers, the psalm seems to imply. And God's gift is so immense that we're all invited to sing. The circle of those invited grows with intimations of feasting to come. First, there are the poor and those who search for God with whom the psalmist identifies closely, no doubt. Then, in turn, it's to the ends of the earth and the peoples of all the nations of the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this psalm being read in Ukraine? to praise God to the ends of the earth in all nations. Finally, the psalmist speaks of those not yet born who will also praise God. All generations are drawn to an expanding celebration. What has happened to this single person in agony is of significance for all human beings for all time. No one, not one, can be excluded. having passed through the suffering and received God's response, whatever that was, the psalmist seems to find joy somehow, some way. It seems impossible. And it's turning a gaze to all who are living. And it's at that final few verses that the song changes And the psalm concludes that dawn has arrived. The psalmist says it summons the whole community into this experience of transformation. You know, I don't know about you, but that just seems like so hard. So hard to move from this pain to praise. So hard to wait. So hard to listen, so hard to be still, so hard to hope. It's so hard, and yet the psalmist sings as Lilia sings and invites us to move from our individual suffering into community.
when I was first a pastor, I, I subscribed to this journal called Weavings. It was just this wonderful journal. I don't know if it's even still out there anymore, but I remember reading an article about a man whose father-in-law had died. He had died of Parkinson's and had had a long life, but not long enough for the family. And you know about Parkinson's. It's a disorder of the nervous system, and it affects movement. And oftentimes, the person doesn't even know they have it until they sense a slight trembling in one of their hands. And if the tremors continue, um, there develops a stiffness and a slowing of movement. Arms don't swing the way they're supposed to when you walk, and speech can become soft and slurred. And symptoms worsen over time as the condition has no cure. His father-in-law, even so, even when he got to where he couldn't walk or talk, held within him this bright spirit that the son-in-law couldn't quite grasp. How is it that he has this bright spirit in the midst of this pain and suffering? Surely he had prayed over and over again, Psalm 22. After he died, the man and his wife went to his father-in-law's home and found on the bedside table a collection of the Psalms. And it was so worn. It was barely holding together. And what the man came to understand was that that had sustained him all the psalms, all the psalms, even the dark psalms, had helped him to better understand his suffering, the suffering of his family, the suffering of the world. The psalms allowed him to be honest with God about his own situation, even when it seemed like God was silent. The great prophet Anne Lamott has famously said, hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait, you watch, and work, and you don't give up. In seminary, I remember hearing a sermon one day in chapel, and it just knocked me out of the pew. The pastor preached, and I don't even know what scripture, I don't know. But in it, she said, I went through an awful time in my life when I, I couldn't pray. Because God wasn't answering. I couldn't pray. No answers for me. And so I just kept going to chapel because that's what you do when you're in seminary. You go to chapel. And she said, then one day as they were praying, she realized that all these people were praying when she couldn't. All these people were holding her in God's light 
when she couldn't pray. And she had no words and felt that God was far away and very, very silent. And so that was a turn. As in the 22nd Psalm, this turn back toward community, back toward life, back toward hope, back toward the promises of God, and that in the voices of the people who surrounded her with their faithful prayers, she heard God speak in the community of God's people. And perhaps there are a lot of lessons from Psalm 22, but from this preacher we heard that we can count on those around us to pray, and we can be those who pray when others can't. This is our work. This is the work for us to do. This is our ministry, to hold people in prayer, to hold them close, to let them weep and scream and shout at God and demand God be good on God's promises. This is our work to do, to care for people when they cannot speak anymore, when they cannot pray anymore, when God seems so far away. It is our work them, to keep them, to remind them, and to remind God of God's promises. Amen? Amen. Amen.